Every good sermon must come to a conclusion, a final charge that stirs the people to respond faithfully to the things that they have just heard from the preacher. We got that from John the Baptist in the beginning of the Gospels, where he preaches and and calls the nation of Israel forward and concludes his message with the charge to repent from sin and to be baptized. We hear it from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount after he has described for three chapters in the book of Matthew how the Christian life is to be lived out in obedience, how a true disciple walks through this world that we live in. He ends with a charge that we are to be like the man who builds his life upon a firm foundation, the unshakable foundation of the gospel. We see it also in Acts chapter 17, when the Apostle Paul, preaching to the Greek philosophers that have gathered there regularly at the Areopagus, he ends his sermon to them by declaring that the time for ignoring the unknown God has come to an end, that judgment was on its way. And so those who had been content to wonder and to wander must now repent and trust in Jesus who rose from the dead as proof that he was the solution that God had sent. So please understand, a sermon is not an instrument for entertainment. Neither is it a series of ideas that the listener can contemplate and make use of at his discretion. A sermon is really an instructive explanation of what God wants for man. It is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. It contains a call to faithful obedience so that the one who hears the sermon will be moved to action as it shapes his heart and his mind. So sermons are not primarily an intellectual exercise, though they do engage our thoughts. They are intended to engage our actions as well. And so here we are at the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. And the preacher has no doubt stimulated our hearts. He has influenced our minds. He has made us think about great and lofty things. But his ultimate goal in saying these things is not to suggest. His ultimate goal is to proclaim, to declare the things of God, to proclaim that there is a meaning to life, but that it cannot be found just anywhere you look. It can only be found in him who gave us the breath of life. So let us read the conclusion of this great sermon and let us consider the right way to respond to all the things that wise Solomon has shared with us up to this point. We're reading the last two verses, verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil. Bow with me briefly as we pray and thank the Lord God for what he will teach us today. Lord God, the soil has been tilled and prepared. The seeds have been scattered. The fields have been watered. All that's left is for the Holy Spirit to do the work that only the Holy Spirit can do and bring life to this harvest. God, we pray that you would bear good fruit in our lives according to the things that you have taught us through this wonderful book of wisdom, this surprising book that in many ways is very unique from other books in the Bible, but at the same time is in complete concord with everything else you have revealed to us through your special revelation. We do pray, Lord God, for the humility to approach these things with a sense of reverence and awe and true right fear for you. You are a God of order, 
a God of goodness. You declare what is true and you are not open to allowing man to redefine that truth. And so I ask, Lord God, that you will bring us as low as we need to be in order to really understand and take to heart the things that you have given to us in this wonderful book and help us to understand and apply its conclusion. We praise you, God, for Solomon and the work that you did through him. We praise you, Lord God, for the opportunity to have the word available to us like this. We praise you that we live in a place that we are free to preach this. We are free to proclaim it and we are free to live it. We ask, Lord God, that you would do all these things to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Here Solomon fixes our attention on the end of the matter. What is the matter at hand, by the way? What is the driving question that this sermon seeks to answer? That, that driving question should be familiar to us if we've been working through this book together for the long haul of Ecclesiastes. The question is, does life have any meaning apart from God? And can mankind, through his own methods, through his own schemes, through his own efforts, find satisfaction for himself? We didn't know going into this book that the Lord would give First Family Church and really the rest of the entire world such a vivid opportunity to think about the themes and the weighty matter that is contained in the pages of this book by carrying us into a season that would make us all think about life and freedom in ways that perhaps we have never thought about before. The worldwide quarantine that we are contending with did not invent the dilemma, but it sure did create a backdrop that was conclusive for asking the kinds of questions that Solomon has asked through this, this book of the Old Testament. As we grapple with the effects of this virus throughout the world, the threat of death is before us. In honesty, it has always been before us, but we are usually content to brush it to the side and not have to deal with it. We don't want to think about it, so we pretend that our mortality isn't an issue we really need to deal with. The current epidemic does not afford us that luxury, as the masks that we see everyone wearing the never-ending news that is bombarding us with new, about, new information about what's going on in the world as these restrictions that we have to learn to abide under. These are all reminders to us of our mortality. So just as the preacher's sermon returns repeatedly to the topic of death within the book of Ecclesiastes, you and I are given pause every day to consider the reality of man's end and to see the proof that we are not really in control of that end. The things that man so often looks to for meaning have been in part stripped away from us. Man often seeks meaning in, in their job, in their gainful employment, and many people don't have the luxury of going to that job right now. Many people find their meaning and their purpose in person-to-person -person relationships, and how many of those doors have been shut for us as we've been called to isolate and to keep ourselves away from the people that we love the most. Other people find their meaning in freedom or in recreation. So many of these things have been limited for us by this quarantine that we are finding ourselves under. The limits of our own control have been exposed. And if we are willing, then the circumstances of life that have fallen upon us can act as an amplifier of sorts to make our, our study of the matter that, that Solomon brings to mind all the more meaningful to us. Solomon draws to this conclusion, declaring that all has been heard. The author has systematically sifted through the main pursuits that man will run after, 
in a vain attempt to settle the matter of meaning in life. He has pursued pleasures. He has enjoyed all the things that the world has to offer. He has gone after the pursuits of his senses and he has really found no lasting joy in it. It has not given him meaning or fulfillment. He has gone after possession. He has stored up his storehouses with goods and with money and with wealth. And this too has fallen short of his goal. He pursued power. Of course, as the leader of the nation of Israel at the height of its, of its power and glory, Solomon had every opportunity to see what kind of joy and fulfillment he could derive from the power that he could exert over others. And yet he found himself empty by it. It did not give him meaning or fulfillment. And then, of course, he pursues throughout the book this thing called wisdom. Wisdom which at times does bless the recipient and it is good for some things. But again, even wisdom falls short of fulfilling Solomon. Even by wisdom, he cannot attain to the questions that he desires answers for. So none of these pursuits bring Solomon closer to a satisfactory result. So while Solomon used all the resources and the power that was available to him as the king of Israel, as one of the most powerful men in the world, <clears throat> none of these pursuits were effective in giving his soul rest. But throughout the philosophical, ex philosophical ex exercise that is Ecclesiastes, the wise mind of Solomon could not help but be drawn back again and again to the one component that man so readily and quickly tries to avoid, that being the one who dwells beyond the sun. As human beings, as created things, we are described in Ecclesiastes as being under the sun, but the true answer to this question cannot be found here under the sun. Meaning and fulfillment must be found beyond the sun, must be found in the transcendent God. Though the preacher dabbled in secular solutions in his quest to find meaning and fulfillment, he could not commit himself with his whole heart to a godless model of life. If there would be an answer to this quest, it would not be found apart from the beginner, the sustainer, the final judge. What Solomon himself had found through this diligent pursuit of truth and meaning, he has intentionally shared with us. Last week we saw that the preacher weighed the facts, that he studied wisdom, that he arranged the truth in such a way that his audience might be able to work through this critical question along with him. And the implications of the answer to this question cannot be understated. Indeed, what is life? without purpose. What will happen to a man or a woman if we refuse to answer this matter? And we don't have to look far to see the results of this because the world that we live in is full of those who aren't truly concerned with the meaning of life. They are content to simply drift along on the current of what is going on in the day, led by the common thoughts of the world, led by the philosophies of man and not truly seeking the truth. The consequences of this are dire. A life without purpose is a dangerously careless life, driven not by principles and ideals, but by the unsustainable passions of the heart and whatever winds of influence tend to be blowing at the time. A life without meaning is a wasteful existence. It is an unmeasured an undirected state of being. A life lived without principles and purpose lacks clear goals. Spontaneity has its merits, 
But if life is lived without direction and without purpose, then how can it have true meaning? Life without purpose is a life lived without love. For true love is purposeful. True love goes far beyond a simple feeling of affection for somebody else. True love desires the best for someone else. But without meaning and purpose, then how can we know what is best for someone else? Every attempt at love is a simple shot in the dark. Solomon is determined to spare us from this meaninglessness that I just described. So he has leaned into the question. He has persisted in the pursuit of an answer until the solution was in his grasp. And now he is ready to share that product of the journey with us. And this is much different than the typical modes of philosophy in human life because it goes beyond the hunt itself. The preacher drives for a conclusion. How many whimsical thinkers have asked question after question after question, not because they really desired to find the answer or even believe that there could be one, but simply to be in the state of contemplation, to be a deep thinker, to be one whose thoughts were lofty. Too many people are content to treat speculation like a sport instead of looking at it as a means to the ends of truth. In 1945, C.S. Lewis wrote a story called The Great Divorce, which is a fictional imagination of how man's attachment to sin so often keeps him from the blessings of God and from knowing him well. And so in this fictional story, we have a man, a lifelong searcher, a man who would count himself as a philosopher. He loved to think and speculate about the great questions of life. And he finds himself on the brink of heaven. Now, through the course of the story, uh, there is this, this great bus that brings people into the heavens and, and all these people from the world find themselves at the gate of heaven and many of them find themselves wanting the things of the world and so they reject heaven. Well, this man finds himself there at the gate and the Lord God uses someone that we call in the story a character called the White Spirit who is going to invite the man to leave that broken world behind and enter into the eternal glories of heaven. So let me read just an excerpt of this conversation that's had between the white spirit, an evangelist sent of God, and this philosopher who is in love with his ideas. The white spirit says, I can promise you no scope for your talents, only forgiveness for having perverted them. No atmosphere of inquiry, for I will bring you to the land not of questions, but of answers, and you shall see the face of God. The philosopher replies, Ah, but we must all interpret those beautiful words in our own way. For me, there is no such thing as a final answer. The free wind of inquiry must always continue to blow through the mind, must it not? The white spirit, sensing this man's resistance to truth, begins to heighten his approach. He, he has urgency in his voice as he says to the philosopher, Listen, once you were a child, once you knew what inquiry was for, there was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and were glad when you had found them. Become that child again, even now. The philosopher's sad reply is, ah, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. No matter what the white spirit says to this individual, he cannot be convinced 
that a greater freedom is waiting for him in the truth of God than can ever be found in the endless exploration of speculation. Their conversation ends when the philosopher remembers that he had an appointment to meet with a discussion group back on earth. He turns around and he walks away from heaven to rejoin a life that is devoid of truth. Remember the warning that Pastor Paul touched on in his sermon last week. The pursuit of understanding is a noble pursuit. But don't let yourself be dragged into the endless cycle of speculation. Drive for the ultimate truth. Seek not just to ask the question, but to find its ultimate answer and to rejoice when you do. Verse 11 of last week's sermon The words of the one shepherd are like nails firmly driven home. They're described as the thing that anchors us. Verse 12, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Solomon doesn't want to weary our flesh here, so he drives all the way to the conclusion. He will not rest until he has settled the matter. And here is where fulfillment lies. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Two charges. Do you see it here? The first charge, fear God. The second charge, keep his commandments. We're going to look at both in depth this morning. The conclusion of the matter is not just some existential idea. It is a necessary response to the reality of our limits. Since we cannot fulfill ourselves, since we cannot cheat death, since we cannot satisfy the yearning for something eternal that has been written on the code of our very being, we really must respond in these two ways. And doing so will act as a medicine to the meaninglessness that plagues so many men and women who wander through life asking questions but never settling on the right answers. Our first charge is this, to fear God, to take Him seriously, to treat Him as He deserves to be treated. Understand His power and be humbled by it. It is no coincidence that the first call to action is a call to fear. We might recall the words of Proverbs 1, verse 7, that were also penned by the hand of Solomon. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So we see there that the fear of God is a fundamental foundation for understanding life and for gaining wisdom. It acknowledges that God is beyond our full knowing, as Isaiah 55, 8 shares with us. It acknowledges that true wisdom comes from God and is governed by God's hand. It acknowledges that God is more than just a sage who has collected over the years so many experiences and so many ideas. No, God is the judge of what is right and what is wrong. He determines truth from falsehood. And so God has not only ultimate knowledge, but ultimate power. If we have any hope to gain knowledge, we begin with the right perspective of He who has all knowledge. Are you surprised that the conclusion of the matter is not love God and keep His commandments? We're so used to hearing it phrased like that in the New Covenant. Love God and keep His commandments. Is there room for fear when we are called to love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? Doesn't 1 John 4, 17-19 tell us that perfect love casts out fear? Solomon's carefully worded conclusion 
is really intended to invoke the very highest calling in the law of God, as it is described in Deuteronomy chapter 10. And these are the words recorded by Moses. He writes in verses 12 and 13, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord with your, your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Note that fearing the Lord and walking in his ways is connected by necessity with the charge to love him. This fear of God, which respects him as greater and creates a desire in us to be near to that which is better and wiser than we are, is part and parcel of a proper love for God. So love and fear are not in contradiction with each other here. In fact, Jesus himself declares that it is right to fear God. He says it in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And don't think that this is Jesus preaching to a mixed multitude. It's not that He is singling out the non-believers in the crowd and saying, No, you unbelievers, you need to fear the Lord God. In fact, He is speaking to His disciples the closest men to him because he's about to send them out on mission to preach the gospel. And in order to do that, they need to found that mission on a proper fear for the Lord God. But even though the charge to fear the Lord is echoed here in Matthew chapter 10, many are still quite uncomfortable with the idea of fearing God. They don't want that to be an element of their relationship with the Father. They are more than happy to love God and to be loved by Him. And they don't really see how fear should have a place since they've been forgiven of their sins. So it is very common to hear preachers and to see Christian writers going to great lengths to soften this concept of fear. And I don't think they're doing us a justice in, in, in doing that. They often speak about fear as being respect. You know, to fear God is just simply to respect Him, to think of Him as good and worthy of praise. They talk about fear as admiration. You're to see the greatness of God. And when you fear Him, that really just means that you like Him, that you are impressed by Him. Or they'll say that fear is an honor for the Lord God. So there's some official reverence attached to this idea of fear. And now each of these, these terms plays a part in the Hebrew word yare, to fear. This fear that Solomon speaks of. But it is not wrong to simply let fear be what it is. We don't have to try to redefine it to fit our modern sensibilities. God is the only one who has the power over life and death. He can send our soul to judgment. What's more, we deserve to have our souls sent to judgment. So if he decided to do that, he would be right and good to do it. Friends, we are enemies to God apart from the grace that He so mercifully gives to us. And that is why in the course of Scripture, anyone who comes into the presence of the living God immediately bows and trembles before Him. Isaiah did it when he was spiritually allowed into the throne room of heaven. Mary did it when the angel approached her as the messenger of God and told her that she had a special mission, that God was going to bring a child through her, though she was still a virgin. The shepherds did it when the heavenly host appeared to them in the fields. They trembled with fear. 
And that fear was not a wrong response, but it was only the graciousness and the invitation of a loving God who could overcome their sin by which each of those messengers declared to the one who trembled, do not be afraid. Because God was giving them an invitation into right relationship with him. God is mighty. He is untamable. And what's more, he has the power and the authority to determine the fate of your soul. That is what's told to us in verse 14 that we are studying today. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The fear of the Lord does have a component of admiration to it. But admiration, respect, and honor, they are not the sum total of fear. Is it possible to have an unhealthy fear of God? Of course it is. I believe it is definitely impossible to have a healthy, unhealthy fear of God. If we see God as judge, but we fail to see him as good. When God is judge over all things, but we do not know the goodness and the wonderful truth of God, then we might tremble unnecessarily before the Lord with a, with a terror instead of a right fear for him. Do you remember several years back in 2002 when two men went on a shooting spree in Washington, D.C. area? And this was not like your normal shooting spree where somebody just runs out with a load of guns and tries to take out as many people as they could. These two men carefully plotted a, a, a way by which they might assassinate people in broad daylight. They fitted a, a car with a, a shooter's nest in the trunk and a hole through the key of the trunk so that one of them could lay in the back of the car, the other could drive to a location, and they could target a random individual and with one pull of the trigger end that person's life. Seventeen men and women were killed by these snipers, and ten more were injured before these two men were finally brought to justice. But that didn't happen until several weeks had passed. And I remember reading the news reports and, and, and reports about how people in that area were absolutely gripped with terror. They didn't want to go to the store because they were afraid that from the car to the front door, they might be the next target of these D.C. snipers. Those men yielded power, but they were not good. That power was a power of wickedness. That's not the kind of fear that we are to have for the Lord God. That is an abject terror. But God is not unjust in his rulings. Though our souls are in his hands, he is fair and good. He wants what is right for his people. He does what is good. And he himself is the epitome of everything that is holy and pure and upright. Let me just read some scriptures that, that confirm this sentiment. 1 John 1.5, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That is the kind of God that we are to fear, a God who is infinitely good and holy, who hides nothing in the dark, who doesn't, who doesn't creep around in the shadows, a God of light and goodness. Psalm 110.5, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This is a God who is faithfully good. He's not going to be good today and then change his mind and be wicked tomorrow. This unchanging God will ever be what he is. He is trustworthy. He is steadfast. And we can put our faith in him. 
James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So there is no way that the God who is above us in all authority and power will ever be corrupted. He will never be led away from the true path that is his very nature and character. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is a judge who beckons with loving hands and calls his elect to turn from their sin and to experience the joy of a right relationship with him, one that they could never in a million years earn for themselves, a relationship that should be defined by judgment and punishment. He changes that into a relationship of love and care. That is the kind of God we are called to fear. God is good. So why should we fear him? Because we are not good. Because we are inherently crooked and sinful and rebellious. And this God who provides all that we need is the very God that we by nature rebel against and shake our fist at and try to become independent from, though he is the source of all goodness and life. We are by nature enemies to God. If we have not experienced the saving grace of Jesus Christ, then we remain as such. It is only because this God of goodness finds it good to display his glory by calling to himself broken sinners like us that we can ever have a hope of being anything but under the judgment of God. Through Jesus Christ, who alone was free from sin, through the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross at Calvary, by his death suffering, burial, and resurrection, our sins can be put to death once and for all. And we can be set free from the debt that we owe to him only by his gracious hand and not by anything that we have done on our own. I want you to turn with me for a moment to Romans chapter 3. In this section of the wonderful doctrinal book of Romans, Paul is making a critical argument for why mankind needs salvation through Jesus Christ. Sin, he explains, is a universal problem for human beings. Both Jews and Gentiles, in fact, every person from every tribe and tongue and nation in the world is morally bankrupt apart from God. And so listen to how the Apostle Paul describes the state of natural man, beginning in verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands no one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Let me read that last line again. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see the product of a man standing fearlessly before the Lord God? Destruction, wickedness, and evil. Are we to love God, church? Yes, 
He is good and worthy of our adoration and praise and trust. Are we to fear God? Yes, even our redeemed state, we should fear this God who is greater than all things. And when we fail to fear him, the consequences can be great in us. It is when man abandons his fear of God that he works up the nerve to declare that God was wrong to create man and woman unique from one another and to define us in such limited terms. We become arrogant without a fear of the Lord and attempt to undo what God has made. A man who doesn't fear God does not have to respect the truth. And so he is free to make up his own truth. And lies become commonplace for him as he deconstructs the reality that God has made and builds a new reality in his own mind to the disrespect of the true creator. A nation who makes it legal to cut short the life of an unborn human being is a nation that has forgotten to fear God. It is a man who becomes arrogant, a man who becomes rebellious, a man who desires destruction, who refuses to fear the godly reign of the one sovereign king. What a critical er error it is to think about God in a way that doesn't acknowledge his power, that doesn't do homage to his authority, his place as judge over all creator. Friends, there is a reckoning to life. Life is not meaningless or pointless. It all culminates in a judgment. And that judgment will not be of our own doing. It will be of God's hand. As man, or man as God's creation, does not have the right to make up his own meaning for life. God is greater than us, and so we must fear him and respect him and honor him with everything that we are. Notice again in Ecclesiastes 12, 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment, every single deed. That's how good God is. Goodness is such an essential part of his character that God must bring every single deed that occurs in his creation into judgment. He will weigh every action, every word, every thought. Does God consider all things vanity and meaningless according to these words? Absolutely not. The drive of this book has not been to cast the things that happen here on earth as meaningless and unimportant. No, on the contrary, life is only meaningless and unimportant if we are ignorant of the God who gives all things meaning. Since God cares about everything that happens in his vast creation, the second charge that Solomon will give us in conclusion is this. We are to fear God and we are to keep his commandments. Fear God, keep his commandments. Notice that these instructions are in the proper order. If you try to keep the commandments of God, but you don't fear God, then you have not fulfilled your purpose as a human being. Your efforts to comply to the rule of God will, will be of no eternal value to you. You might help to create a better society here on earth, but that's not really what you were made for. You were made for something greater, for a kingdom that will last forever. Our ability to keep God's command is born not out of our own efforts, not of our own obedience, not of our own wisdom, but of a right fear of and love for the God who reigns over all that he has made. Turn with me for a moment to 2 Corinthians 
chapter 7. We're going to look at some verses from chapter 6 as well, or at least I'll read them to you. But let's look at chapter 7, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians, where it says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Since we have these promises, Paul drives us here to seek holiness to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. In other words, he's calling the New Testament church, the new covenant people of God, to keep God's commandments. And the thing that makes that possible, the thing that motivates us to see this through, are the great promises that we have been given from God. What are those promises? They are cataloged in the last verses of chapter 6, where God says, I will make my dwelling among them, And I will walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will be a father to you, he says, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. So the promises that should make us desire to keep the commandments of God in a pursuit of holiness, the the promises are a promise of relationship with God, a promise of restored fellowship between man who is once sinful and rebellious, but has been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, which washes away our sins. The promise of a renewed and restored relationship with God, not one of conflict and rebellion, but one of belonging and trust and love. And how will that be manifested? It won't be manifested by you and I keeping the law. Remember, This holiness that we should strive for is not motivated by our actions or desires. It's motivated by the promises of God, the good free gift that he has given to us through his son. When we have exhausted our efforts to make life meaningful for ourselves, when we are humbled at our failures, when we are ready to give up, when the Holy Spirit of God finally lifts our head and directs our attention to look beyond this life and to look at the God of eternity, then our stubbornness is overcome. Not by our own efforts, but by the divine effectual calling of God, which changes the heart of man, which regenerates us and brings us to life. He calls us out of meaninglessness and transforms us into eternal significance by restoring us to himself through Jesus. This is the gospel, friends, and it is throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Again and again and again, Man's own path to meaning and fulfillment falls short and gets him nowhere. It is only by turning to the mighty hands of a benevolent and good God that we can find meaning and purpose. Jesus told us that he did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. It's Matthew 5, 17. Look it up. If the law is not abolished, then what role does it play today? It is helpful, I think, to break down the role that God's commandments play in our lives, breaking them down into three functions. John Calvin, great theologian, identified these three functions, but many others have come to the same basic conclusion in their studies. First of all, the law for the believer, for the forgiven, redeemed man, is like a mirror. It reveals our own wickedness to us. And it helps us to see how much holier God is than man. As we see the demands of God, we cannot help but see that we fall short of those demands. 
The law shows us what holiness looks like. And then it declares to us that we don't look very holy. I tell you, preaching like this each week to a video camera and then sitting with my family in my living room and having to watch me preach on the TV is a creepy experience in some ways. It's, it is definitely very humbling. Every mannerism, everything that I do that I don't notice I'm doing it until I see it on camera becomes glaringly obvious to me. Every slip of, of speech, every word that I say wrong, every line in my manuscript that I fumble upon, every unscripted pause, everything that I do wrong is plainly before me. Watching myself on video is like looking at my ugly face in a mirror and seeing everything that's wrong. The law in some ways is like that because as a mirror does, it reflects onto us our flaws and our failures. And if you are a redeemed Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you still have flaws and failures. There is a process of sanctification that is going on in you that will continue to the day of your death whereby God is refining you and drawing out of you the tendencies that match your old life and replacing them with things that match the life of Christ. So we are constantly by the law of God. We don't abandon the law of God because the law of God is still there to do this useful work of showing us what Christ is like and how we are not yet quite like him as we should be. So the law acts as a mirror for us. The second function of the law is the law acts like a shield. This is not just a benefit for believers. The law acts as a shield to the whole world. As God declares what is good and right, cultures pick up on bits of pieces of, and pieces of this and apply it to their own local law. And so the law of God protects us from the evil that we are capable of. When we fear the consequences of breaking God's laws, when we fear the accountability of having other people call us out for our error, that prevents people from being as evil as they would otherwise tend to be. Now, this function doesn't just help believers. Like I said, this is a benefit to the whole world. It's what, it is what we call common grace. So we don't, we don't chuck the law of God in the garbage because the law of God tells us what God loves. It shows us how people who are following after God would live in concert with his own will and heart. And then the third function of the law is that the law is like a map for us. It trains us to be more like the Lord God by adapting ways that are in step with his character and his will. And so this law that is like a map gives us direction. It keeps us in, headed in the right direction. It establishes the narrow path for us so that we won't be so easily deceived and stray away from what is pleasing to the Lord. So the law is not our salvation. We are not under the yoke of the law anymore. Instead, it has become to us this threefold blessing that is like a, a, an ongoing gift from the Lord that helps us and guides us and corrects us. So that first function of the law reveals what is broken in us. If we react in denial to that, if we look at ourselves in the mirror and say, that's not what I look like. I'm much more attractive than that. I'm much more holier than what God says that I am. Or if we are bitter at God for revealing our flaws, then we will not fear him as we should. We will arrogantly turn away from the mirror and decide instead to, to create a character of ourselves, a caricature that, that paints us in a more favorable light than what we really should see ourselves as. But if by grace, if by God's wonderful mercy, he gives us eyes to see what is broken in our hearts and to see what we need to repent of 
and to help us to understand that we must trust God to overcome these flaws, to overcome what is broken in us, then the third function of the law begins to take effect and it acts as this wonderful map that leads us increasingly more close to what Christ is like. We submit to him moment by moment. We walk step by step in faith towards the goals that he has set for us. So to desire to know and to understand, to desire to gain wisdom and have a clear picture of what life is about, that is noble, friends. But it is not enough. Until there is a proper relationship established between the one to be feared and the ones to whom he has chosen to express his love and grace, then life's meaning will remain elusive to us. If you walk away from this book with a greater vocabulary and a few more intellectual conversation starters, but you do not walk with a better understanding of God that leads to a humble heart that desires to follow after Him, then your time in Ecclesiastes will have been nothing but vapor. It will slip right through your grasp and it will do you no earthly good. Obedience is not only the logical response for one who has come to know the living God, it is his duty. In fact, Solomon describes it as the whole duty of man. Now, it's interesting if you go back and study the Hebrew in this because the word duty is not explicit in the text. In verse 13, it is only implied. And the phrase literally reads, this all man. And the reason it reads like that is because in the ancient Hebrew, the verb to be is often assumed. They don't always write it in. They just assume that if it means to be, then you'll add that in on your own. And so if we try to do that with these three, three words, it, it sounds like this. This is all that man is. This is man's everything. Friends, to fear God and to obey his commandments, this is man's everything. It is, it is the totality, totality of his being. Why is this the whole duty of man? Because men were made in the image of God. The imago dei means that your very existence is tied to the one whose image you bear. And so if you attempt to live life in such a way that you cut yourself off from the one that you were designed to represent and reflect and glorify, then you are no longer doing what you were built to do. And dissatisfaction is the unavoidable consequence of that tragedy. There isn't another pursuit in all of life that will satisfy your hunger for meaning. No other pursuit. No matter how hard we try, we will not find ourselves to be content with any other endeavor or activity if it is not an integral part of our duty to honor God and follow the path that his will has laid out for us in life. Let us praise the Lord God for what Solomon has taught us in this amazing journey. And Solomon hasn't answered every question in life, but here he has laid out for us the answers to the questions that really matter. Why are we here? We're here to give glory to God, to enjoy him forever, to walk in his ways as he has prepared for us, and to do that by the grace that he has supplied. Father God, we praise you for the word spoken, the word preached, the word written, these words which, which are your words ultimately, Lord God. So I ask that for myself, 
You would humble me, Lord, that you would help me to not let any other pursuit interfere with the grand pursuit of fearing you, honoring you and loving you, and obeying your commands. I pray that for our people as well. Let First Family Church be a church that glorifies your name, not just in word or thought, not just in philosophy or doctrine, but in practice, God. Help us actively love you and actively love one another as you have loved us. We thank you, God, for the often humbling realities that Solomon has laid out before us. We know from looking at the life of Solomon that he was not a perfect man, that he had his share of grave errors that he committed as well. Let us not be so arrogant as to think that these words of humility are for some other sinner and not for ourselves. God, let the word shape us and mold us into who you have redeemed us to be. And may you receive all the glory for it. Expand your kingdom, Lord God. Glorify your great name. We pray that you will do it in and through us. And we pray this through Jesus, our high priest. Amen.